Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 69. Every Generation Creates the Dharma Anew. The Roundtable Geeks continue their exploration of Whitney Joyner's article, Dive Bar Dharma. In a flurry of paradox, perspectives, humor, and exploration, they tackle questions of integrating Dharma into life. The Buddhist secular movements, contemplative practices in other traditions, and the historical and sociological dimensions of Dharma's spread to the West. We hope you enjoy this dynamic and fun conversation between fellow Buddhist geeks. This is part two of a two-part series. So another thing I noticed from this article uh, is kind of this question of whether or not by presenting it in this different way that it would be watered down or if it's actually more of an integration to our daily lives. That seemed like a theme throughout. Like, yeah. Can we really integrate Buddhism into our daily lives versus like having it be this thing we go off and do in the monasteries? And I, I noticed Alan Wallace, uh, they quoted him as saying, uh, when my generation is history, if all we have is hip Buddhism that's non-conventional, <laughs> just people who went through some training but no years in retreat, then that's really yeah. sad. And Nick Turn, of course, retorted, well, one of the things that Buddhism has historically lacked is a strong tra- tradition for how not to spend 10 years in a monastery, how to really bring these principles into your life and the world. And I thought it was a real interesting <laughs> dichotomy and one yeah. I think is really important. Well, it seems like both those perspectives are kind of extreme. 10 years in a monastery, like that seems like a straw man. Who's, who spends 10 years in a monastery? Right, 10 um, days. Yeah, yeah 10 days <laughs> once a year is like, is my model. But, um, you know, and, and even Vince here, the most hardcore on the table, except maybe Theo, um, as far as retreat time, it's more like, you know, two months at a time max, but right. not even all year. So, and then, you know, I mean, Dave, uh, what Alan Wallace is doing requires maybe eight, eight month retreats or something, but or three-month retreats for achieving deep, deep shamatha. But that's, that's kind of a different practice. And there's always going to be people who are doing that. That straw man argument is so prevalent in our society too. Mm. Yeah. yeah, That's this a was, great point. <laughs> this whole problem was coming up to me or in our earlier conversation. I was thinking about that. And I've always wrestled with that. I'm not really on one side or the other because I constantly feel it. I, when I hear people talking about integrating your life, I automatically take Alan Wallace's perspective I hear someone take, talking like Alan Wallace, I jump to the other side and I don't really know where the in-between is, <laughs> yeah. but that's how I feel. I'm like, oh, integrating your life. Well, to me, I automatically think you're not practicing. You have this ideal that you're imposing upon the teachings and it feels good and it is good in some ways, but at the same time, are you actually deepening your practice? At the same time, we live in a society where 10 years in a monastery ain't going to fly. I mean, that's just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. The words integrating it into your life are very interesting because... In a way, it implies that one isn't changing at all. Mm. Like this thing has to fit into the pegs of what's open right now in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think point. that's the biggest thing that I have concerns about or it represents that with this sort of movement. I wonder if people are really challenged to open themselves to timeless truths and universal truths or if things get associated with a subculture that they're in, in a country they're in, in the life they're in on the street they're in. And I wonder how many, how much that just supports patterns in their mind that mm-hmm. are there. Mm. That's a good question. That's a really excellent point. There's another timeless element of this that seems that every religion that spreads itself has always had to 
find a place in the culture that it goes into. And it's right. always brought some kind of exotic elements as well, hmm. which has placed a pressure on the individuals within that culture to open themselves up to something new and integrate something of their past and some element of integrating the practice into their lives and their lives into the practice. I think of Christianity spreading from what today is Israel, Palestine, up north through Turkey into the Roman Empire to where you have an extremely different culture that's playing out extremely different ways of being in the world, integrating what at the time was an Eastern cult. That was what it was often referred to as an Eastern cult. And then you have the Arabs mm. spreading Islam outside mm. of Arabia and radically transforming a culture that was closely related to it throughout the Middle East. But then it also went to Indonesia and, um, and into Africa and, and, at that point, it wasn't Arab culture anymore at all. So, and Buddhism has done the same thing, and and we're struggling with, I think, actually a timeless struggle. And the timeless truths you're pointing to, um, an individual opening to, are tied in with the timeless struggle mm -hmm. of integrating those timeless truths into our lives. Yeah, another thought that I had around integrating timeless truths into our lives, the, the truths of the Dharma of, of Buddhist practice, is there some element of that that's just always going to be present that especially if you actually go on retreat, even just 10 days, and then have some sort of experience, how do you integrate that into your daily life? If you want to be a sincere practitioner, um, that's going to just be tough. Like there's just a, a difficulty involved in integrating spiritual insight into your daily life, into your job, into your relationships, into how you treat other people that um, there aren't any easy answers for. Right. I mean, I, I applaud anyone who's helping people to do that for sure, for sure. But on the other hand, like if you haven't had any insight or if you haven't really done any practice, I think the first thing to do is encourage someone to practice. Yes. Um, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, not this to, not to try to integrate shallowness into their life. <laughs> See, totally. This is what I've been thinking just now. I was going to put out another maybe controversial perspective is that like, that's what should come first is insight. And I think that establishing that in our Western culture and the practices, the structures that support that is extremely difficult yeah. from my observations. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be a lazy attitude to just automatically go to the integrating side because we're already ah, working. Yeah. We're already doing these things. So let's just do this and avoid the really tough part and figure out how the hell we're going to have Buddhist roots, the deep insight, you know, sink into our culture. Yeah. And that's what Alan Wallace uh, was basically getting at. And Reggie Ray, again, another uh, kind of boomer teacher was mentioning at the end of the article that the lazy hippie Dharma isn't going to work anymore. <laughs> and that we have a lot of people, he said we had a lot of people in the sixties and seventies who went off to India and meditated, but not many of them got really deeply enlightened because well, they're kind of lazy. <laughs> and the hashish yeah. and the, you know, the other things that were going on in India at that time probably interfered with that. Work. <laughs> Work. As in Goenka's in the room. Patiently Get out of here, Goenka. <laughs> That's the whole emphasis in that tradition is yeah. that it actually takes an incredible degree of discipline that has to be brought to the practice. And we're purifying stuff that's coming up in ourselves that as soon as we're exposed to the notion of releasing ourselves from suffering or deep, all pervasive angst, whatever we want to call this, that stuff comes up, old psychological patterns, habits, um, desires, aversions. And we have to draw very clear boundaries in our lives 
to allow that to come up and to just be aware of that stuff, right. to not act on it. And those boundaries used to be drawn for you by the monastery, right? Because right. there was like that that container, that that uh, institution that let you kind of be away from the most of the world and kind of integrate those things in a safer community. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's not so much like that. Yeah, but you do have centers and right and retreat yeah. time and that sort of thing. If you can, you can swing it. And you know, Reggie's comment and Alan's comment, it still doesn't mean imply what it has to look like but i think they still there's a principle there that they're pointing to and so it may not be 10 years on retreat that right. that's what it looks like for western culture but there still needs to be figured out though um going back to the personal development literature yeah. ten out ten thousand hours is considered kind of normal for for any kind of mastery of any type of thing and, yeah. and alan wallace <laughs> mentioned a lot of the tibetan monks fifty thousand yeah. hours more they mm-hmm. spent deepening into this stuff yeah um, i don't know if I, you really need to do that to teach but seems like you have to have some it's it makes sense right? five years full-time work basically ten thousand hours yeah. phd in meditation i do wonder though if we expect less dedication in that way from mm-hmm. our culture mm-hmm. if we really ever will reach the sort of understanding or yeah i guess just understanding mm-hmm. as people in eastern cultures who where buddhism is really part of their culture yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, I'm continually reminded, well, not continually, periodically reminded of how different Buddhism is in the United States when I hear stories of how little people meditate in other mm-hmm. Buddhist cultures, how little monks yeah. even mm-hmm. meditate. And our notion of practice is oftentimes much more discipline in the United States amongst at least serious Buddhists, mm-hmm. serious Buddhist practitioners who meditate every day and go on retreat a few times a year um, than it is in most other Buddhist cultures. Sometimes I get the impression even that a serious lay Buddhist practitioner in the United States meditates far more than a Buddhist monk in other cultures. We're gonna, we'll talk with Reggie as soon as we can get him on, but he's, his studies into the Buddhist practitioners that came from India he offers a third perspective, though, on, on just monks and lay folks, and that's the yogi, forest-dwelling yogi. And so there's more complexity than what most people even realize, that there's, there's practitioners that were hardcore that went out of the monasteries. Monasteries were the folks that kept the teachings going. They, they learned it, they memorized it, and preserved it in a kind of a structure, but the forest-dwelling yogis were the folks that learned it, that actually realized it. And of course, the lay people, that's right, they didn't do much of anything except for make sure that the monasteries could, could continue or give food to the yogis. And possibly we're, we're developing a kind of a hybrid of, of maybe two or three of those. So, uh, yeah, just this is all making me think back to marketing the Dharma. Um, if anything, the Dharma in the United States or in the West should be marketed as a radical, um, a radical turning of your entire world upside down and that it takes a certain amount of time to do that and that it should be done because the world is kind of screwed up. And, and our relationship to the world is screwed up and, and that we think we're going to achieve happiness by getting a lot of money or, you know, like, like metaphors of Jay-Z should be turned on their head as, you know, yeah. rap stars and, and popular models and uh, movie stars are completely unhappy. And that's what we have as our, as our model for success in the world. And we need to tear down all of that by really looking inside. Um, and that kind of, repurposing of the Dharma or marketing it to popular culture should be to 
in many ways to deconstruct popular culture. I think, and actually to be fair to Nick Turner, I think that's actually how he does use those metaphors a lot uh, of the time. It's a sense I was getting from the article. Yeah. Just going back to the examples of practitioners that we're having from the, uh, from the East. So one example is Lama Tempa from Naropa University. <clears throat> and he's really a hybrid. He has an archery degree. So he did the whole college monastic thing. He's done two, three year retreats, the forest dwelling yogi thing. And now he's not in robes, hanging out, you know, lives in Boulder. And so I think, mm. uh, at least in Tibetan tradition, you're seeing a lot more examples of, of their own boundaries breaking down. Like it's not as rigid between the, yeah. This just raises such an interesting point that's been striking me throughout this conversation. We keep talking about America adjusting to the, the Dharma coming over here and all these Eastern spiritual traditions, mm-hmm. but almost nobody, actually I can't think of anybody I've ever heard mention how incredibly difficult it's going to be for Indian spiritual traditions in India to adapt to Westernization over there. Totally. Um, we're living mm. in a globalized age and all of those traditions are going to have to ch- have to change. Mm. Even 15 years ago when I was in India, most of the sadhus to me looked like pot smoking, hippie influenced um, <laughs> beggars that had been completely corrupted already by wow. 20, 25 years of Western spiritual practitioners and partiers getting mixed up together, going to India and um, just really twisting around what they did. And so when we think of it in this mm-hmm. context, what are we doing? Well, every generation creates the Dharma anew and that goes for every generation in other cultures as well. It would seem totally mm-hmm. every culture creates a gen- the Dharma anew. Mm-hmm. It brings up an interesting point, which I think is closely related to what we were getting at earlier, but in different terms is that in a way I see the movement of Nick Turn and Levine <laughs> to be secularizing and it's kind of a different way than actually naming what that means. Like it means staying in a monastery or not staying in a monastery. Right. Um, and it seems like there's secularizing forces in Eastern countries and yeah. we're a very secularized culture ourselves. Mm-hmm. And seeing the Dharma play out there is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, there is a threat for the deeper meanings of it to be lost sure. amidst like the Dharma yes. means just not being as attached to your Blackberry, perhaps. I'm not saying that's the depth of the metaphor that was used, but that's kind of a hyperbole as opposed to really the ground of what it is to be human and to be conscious and to be in this universe. And yeah, so I think that's one way that they affect each other. And I'm sure there are many different ways that they do. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it go either way. Listen to Alan's vision of a more secular uh, mindfulness practice. He's actually, seems to be wanting to deepen the Buddhist tradition by Mm -hmm. creating a whole branch of the sciences called contemplative science and actually having people train Mm -hmm. like, like they're getting their PhD and being financially supported to do that. And and then having that influence neuroscience and vice versa. And they actually want to like expand the tradition, include more and empirically verify a lot of the things that have been claimed. And I think that's one way. And then the other is bringing it into the schools and just teaching mindfulness of breathing Mm -hmm. to like kids. And that definitely doesn't get to the, the depths of, the Dharma. Right. And it's funny because secularizing uh, the Dharma or Buddhist practice is a way of marketing it as well, making it palatable to uh, a culture and a nation of people who are addicted to science and scientific ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, 
who have forgotten to think with their right brain and their intuition and their inner pictures. Um, in many ways, I, I mean, to just throw out something controversial, I wonder what would happen if uh, Buddhism took a much more religious slant on purpose and emphasized the deepest teachings, um, emphasized being enthusiastically Buddhist, which may is maybe a contradiction, but um, <laughs> but like the big mega churches in the suburbs are not apologetic. Not that we want to necessarily move that direction, but I think there is something missing from American society with its high emphasis on reason and science that it's missing devotion and it's missing um, mm-hmm. a deeper a commitment to things that are deeper than the material. Um, and I know that's what Nick Turn and Levine are pointing to, but perhaps, and Wallace as well, but perhaps just pointing to it directly might be more effective. Buddha, one mega dude under God, <laughs> indivisible <laughs> Dharma, 5,000 people all sitting in quiet. <laughs> one night only. <laughs> one night only. Right. The Buddhist mega churches. Hey, when Thich Nhat Hanh travels around, it's kind of like that. I saw him in Denver and they were like, you know, 500 or 1,000 people and there was a whole crazy bazaar afterwards, which I found bizarre, selling all these <laughs> books and pamphlets. And I think there's different cultures, though, in the West. I mean, I, I see a large, uh, you know, group of Buddhists in, in the West that love the science stuff. But then uh, Boulder, I mean, we love hippies, and hippies aren't into the science. I mean, that's just fine. <laughs> so, like... They're into <laughs> new physics. New physics, right. That's true. The, um, what was it? What the, the bleep do we know kind of thing? Yes. Um, Quantum so, non-locality. Right. So there might be like, I don't know, maybe right. different traditions serve different purposes or diff- there's just different slants on it. I don't know. Yeah. But I haven't seen any, I haven't seen any like uh, Buddhist traditions reaching out to, to conventionals. I think that's what oh. Levine and Nick Turner are trying to do, but they're reading, you know, like you have reaching out to like this uh, rational level development or this kind of new agey mm-hmm. um, subculture. And, you know, no, Levine and Nick Turner are reaching out to like a kind of a punk or you know, maybe an urban subculture, but what about just like soccer moms? Yeah, um, good point. You know, that, that are currently going to mega churches. Yeah, that's interesting because it reminded me of what you said earlier about maybe marketing the Dharma, like it's going to turn your life upside down. And I was like, I don't know if Americans are really going to dig that. You know, like <laughs> I think, yeah, the, the ones who It'll are screw you up. maybe like 20 years old and like they want their life to turn around and they want to mm-hmm. carve out new paths. But I don't know if that's necessarily what the soccer mom wants. And it's interesting because I actually yeah. don't think our culture is completely materialistic. You know, soccer moms, I talk to soccer moms <laughs> sometimes and <laughs> they actually have deep values and deep understanding Absolutely. that, you know, these celebrities aren't necessarily happy and I'm happy. I have the love of my family and I have my faith in God and things like that. So I think just appealing to kind of mainstream, deeper sense can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Meditate. It's American. How about that? <laughs> it's interesting how some turns in our conversation and particularly the soccer mom suggestion has pointed to no offense to soccer moms listening. Oh no. I was actually <laughs> thinking of, uh, um, splicing up the electorate and marketing, you know, how we create these, <laughs> this market differentiation and we go after these certain groups and even going after the mainstream. And as we speak of it, oftentimes sounds like that, but it, it seems like what we really want to be doing is addressing some kind of real world out there with some mm-hmm. kind of real 
solutions to people's problems and that it's really easy to get lost in either maintaining the tradition or radicalizing the tradition or turning those worlds on their heads, like some concept of ours. And the thing that's so beautiful to me about some core Buddhist practices is it's getting down to universal, a universal suffering that I actually do think is somewhat related to a core stress that we experience in our culture, Mm -hmm. but that's getting down to this universal suffering that's there in everyone's experience and how can we address it? And some of the most beautiful Buddhist teachers have been so incredibly down to earth and just bringing their metaphors into basic human experience. And you'll oftentimes hear them joking about the stress that they experience around farting or, (laughs) (laughs) or in some very mundane interaction with people. It's hilarious because they understand basic human experience so Mm. well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about that, I actually more and more think that, um, bringing contemplative practices into the traditions that are already present here in the U.S., like particularly Christianity, is probably a better approach at getting to some of these universal timeless truths. It's actually like start promoting centering prayer, for instance, Father Thomas's contemplative methodology, that that's actually probably going to be more useful um, since you wouldn't have to convert someone's core belief structures to include some other metaphysics and all those other beliefs. You could actually just go with what they're already um, into and just show that there's, there's this deeper dimension to their tradition. What about the popularity of Eckhart Tolle? I mean, he's just now doing all the right. stuff with Oprah Winfrey, got a video podcast out and obviously sold a lot of books. Yeah. And he has a Christian slant too. I mean, he's kind of, yeah. he's kind of eclectic, but uh, he goes in. There's the soccer moms. Yeah. yeah. Right. Soccer moms like Oprah. <laughs> they love Oprah. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on what you're trying to do also. <laughs> Because a lot of the premise of this conversation seems to be we're trying to attract new people to Buddhism or Buddhist practices or Buddhist ways of understanding the world because that will be better for them and for the world, presumably. Um, but if your intention is different, it's to for people already on the path to have a better map of it or mm-hmm. be more aware. I'm not sure if that can fully translate into Christianity. And maybe it can, and that's a question that I think about a lot, um, being someone who... It's a really good question. Plans on being involved with Christianity my entire life. And the the maps of Buddhism are so intricate, which brings me to something else, which is the notion of being appreciative to the cultures that born something mm-hmm. and to the people who did, um, mm-hmm. which I think when you completely separate it, like if you don't mention at all the Eastern origins of something or mm-hmm. where this came from, I, I wonder, it's not necessarily that important, but I do feel like, this appreciation that I feel like is, doesn't, isn't able to be there. Yeah, it always strikes me as plagiarism. Like you're stealing ideas <laughs> and not referencing them. That's funny. The yeah. punks in New York made this up. Really. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that's been starting to um, emerge for me as we continue talking about this is this weird notion that all of this stuff is new in American culture. Bear in mind that we're a nation that was founded by a bunch of radical breakaway sects mm-hmm. in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, the Quakers being very prominent amongst them, that being a mystical Christian tradition in many ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, they sit in silence together for their basic meetings and then make all decisions by consensus. Um, Southern Baptist church actually used to be a consensus oriented um, tradition with no, uh, with a very, very weakened minister 
um, in a lot of ways it resembled what radical hippie groups promote as an ideal decision-making process and decentralization. Um, almost, I would bet that almost all of us here studied Thoreau or Emerson at least a bit in some high school literature course. Transcendentalists. But Thoreau loved the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. They're, they're both...
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.